Hello and welcome to Holmes Borden and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. Okay, so we're finally at the Holmes material. It only took us 29 episodes. Although the primary purpose of this podcast is to reveal Holmes's involvement in the Borden case, it's important to provide you with some background information so that you can understand how all of this came to be, how it all came about. And please remember, I'm drawing on notes that Watson kept. These are notes that he made contemporaneously with the events in question. So they cover activities in the late 1880s and the early 1890s, specifically Holmes's work on the Ripper investigation and Holmes's work on the Borden cases. Also remember that Watson didn't write this up until the 1930s after Holmes had died. Holmes died in 1930. At that point, I think Watson felt a real sense of guilt over his role in the Borden case, and we're going to talk about that. Some really serious stuff happened in the course of the investigation. He also always had this desire to provide historians and the general public with a real account of what had happened. That's always a motivation for him. So in the months after Holmes' death in 1930, Watson is going down to the bank, Cox and Company, on a regular basis, and he's going through this tremendous volume of material in this huge tin box that he has, and he's pulling out what he thinks is relevant, what he thinks he needs in order to write an account of the Borden case. And this is the material that he eventually turns over to his attorney, John Hector McFarlane. This is the material that I have and that I'm using now to create this podcast. So throughout the 1930s, sporadically, through fits and starts, Watson is working on this narrative of the Borden case. I'm going to be quoting from this periodically as we get through the podcast. Some of these passages are going to sound almost identical to what you read in the official record. And when I say official record, I mean the home stories that have been published that have been attributed to Arthur Conan Doyle. So whenever I use the term official record, I mean the books that we can go down to the bookstore and buy or the books that we can buy online through Amazon or whatever. That I will call the official accounts or the official record. So If you've read those stories, you're familiar with the style, you know how Arthur Conan Doyle allegedly wrote this material, his writing style. Some of the stuff I'm going to quote is going to be essentially identical to it. Some of it's going to be less polished. It's not going to sound quite the same as what Doyle wrote, but I think it'll echo that style and it will sound somewhat familiar. At the same time, I'm going to have to fill in some gaps and do some commentary just like I've been doing all along with regard to the Borden material. Now, according to the official account, if you've read those records, you know that in the spring of 1891, there's this final showdown between Moriarty and Holmes. The two of them are on the edge of the Reichenbach Falls, what Americans, I think, would call the Reichenbach Falls. I believe the British call it the Reichenbach Fall. This enormous waterfall in Switzerland, I believe, And Holmes and Moriarty are are in this death struggle on the edge of the Reichenbach Falls, and they topple in, and they're both killed. At least that's the version we get from Watson. And Watson publishes this a year or two after the fact. The public is led to believe that Holmes is dead. However, three years later, Holmes resurfaces, surprises Watson, and tells him, I obviously never died. I faked my death in order to avoid assassination at the hands of Moriarty's confederates. And he tells Watson, I've spent three years doing all kinds of interesting things. I traveled to Tibet. I spent time hanging out with the Dalai Lama. 
Then I went on to Mecca, and then I went to the Sudan, and I was doing some work for the British government. Then I went to southern France and did some chemical researches into tar derivatives or something like that. And then finally, I felt it was time to come back because I knew that Moriarty had a few henchmen that were still causing trouble, and I came back to Britain to clean things up. And at that point, he resumes his career. So that's what the official events tell us. That's what we've been reading for the last 120 years. What's true about all that is that Holmes was, in fact, out of action for three years. He was out of the public eye. He was not doing official government work during those three years. He was having some real serious personal issues that we'll get into. As you know, if you've read the official account, you know that he had issues with heavy drug use. That's a big part of what we're going to be covering through this podcast. And then, of course, we know that he was in the U.S. and he got involved in the Borden investigation. So that's the true version, and that's what we're going to be covering here. I think it's important before we get into the Borden murders and his time in America, we really need to talk a little bit about his background. In the official records, there's virtually nothing about his childhood. I think he makes some reference to having been descended from country squires, and that's about it. And then at some point you learn he has an older brother named Mycroft. Fortunately, I'm able to add some important details as a result of reviewing the Watson notes. So let me get right to it. To begin with, he was largely educated at local day schools in Yorkshire, which is an area of northern England near the Scottish border. So that's where he grew up. Unlike many upper middle class or wealthy Englishmen in the mid to late 1800s, he did not go away to boarding school at a young age. Many of these young men or boys would go away at as young as seven or eight years old, and they'd be in boarding school until they went off to university or Occasionally, they would go straight from their boarding school, which the English call public schools. Sometimes they would go straight from finishing their public school and go into foreign service. They'd go and work in India or Africa or the West Indies or or Canada. But most of the time, they would go on to either Oxford or Cambridge. But he was different. He was educated locally, and this was unconventional. This was partly due to the fact that his parents were struggling with long-term serious illnesses, and they didn't have the time and energy to devote to him. He also had a younger brother. We haven't talked about that. So let's talk about his brothers. There was Mycroft, who was seven years older. Mycroft does appear in the official records. He did work for the British government. He was almost certainly a genius. Holmes at one point says Mycroft essentially is the British government. So we know about Mycroft. At the time that the parents die, Mycroft is 17 or 18, and he's just beginning his career at Oxford. Now, he goes on to study mathematics under, amazingly enough, under a tutor or lecturer, a guy named Charles Dodson. Dodson is Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. So Mycroft is a mathematical prodigy. He's incredibly bright, and he's at Oxford, and this is who's teaching him. So he gets out of Oxford and goes on and works for the British government. Now, he was born in 1847, and that makes him seven years older than Sherlock. Sherlock also had a younger brother. So Mycroft was the oldest, then Sherlock was seven years younger. Then there was a brother named Orville, like Orville Redenbacher or Orville Wright. And this younger brother was three years younger than Sherlock, making him 10 years younger than Mycroft. 
we learn a little bit about this brother, Orville, through Watson's records. And one thing that's interesting about him is that while Mycroft and Sherlock appear to be unemotional and socially disengaged, Orville's different. Although he's also very intelligent, he has this sweet spiritual side to him. And that make, it makes him special. He was different from the other two brothers. He comes into the story to some degree, sort of tangentially. We'll talk about him some more in a kind of an oblique way. And one of the reasons that he's important is that he also, I think, had some impact on Holmes. And we'll talk about that as we go along. So let me talk a little bit about the parents. Although we don't know a lot of detail about them, I think we can make some assumptions. The mother apparently dies of tuberculosis, which in those days they called consumption. And that could be a long lingering disease where you waste away. And apparently this was the case with her. So she's not available emotionally. She doesn't have the emotional or physical energy to devote to these two boys because Mycroft's out of the home. But to Sherlock and Orville, she doesn't have what they need. And then at the same time, the father, who actually died a few months before the mother, at the same time, the father has this horrific decline, physical decline. Watson uses his medical background and his medical expertise to take some details, some information that he gathers, and he comes to the conclusion that actually Holmes's father dies of syphilis. And he says that it was a horrific death, and I'm not going to give you the details. They're really, some of them are really just disgusting about the manifestations of this disease, at least as they applied to the father. But at the very least, it appears that Sherlock's father went blind, he went essentially insane, and that there, on top of everything else, there was like this horrible facial disfigurement. And this was all the result of the syphilis. The reason this is important is that Watson says he thinks there's a connection between the father's horrific decline and his death on the one hand, and Sherlock's aversion to women on the other. Now, Holmes, of course, would insist that he avoided romantic relationships because they would interfere with his ability to maintain objectivity, to be a thinking machine. He likes to describe himself as a highly tuned, efficient machine that analyzes information and comes to brilliant deductive conclusions. And that's why he can't allow himself to become entangled with people emotionally. But Watson says there's a lot more going on at the subconscious level. Here's our first quote from Watson's narrative. And he's talking about Holmes and Holmes's personal style and the way Holmes relates to people. And he says, I'm quoting, I have often remarked on my friend's aversion to romantic sentiments with two notable exceptions, those being Irene Adler and Lizzie Borden. Mr. Sherlock Holmes expressed utter indifference to all of that sex. Although my friend explained to me on many occasions that strong emotions inevitably had an injurious effect upon his admirably balanced mind, other more deeply personal reasons came to suggest themselves. His natural reticence has prevented me from obtaining the necessary data which would settle the issue once for all. But I have manifold reasons to suspect that his attitude toward intimacy was derived in part from the unfortunate circumstances of his father's illness and death. Interesting. So he then proceeds to talk about these horrifying symptoms of syphilis and justifies his belief that this is what killed Sherlock's father. And then he says, 
Already as a boy, Sherlock Holmes possessed keen powers of observation and a scientific imagination that likely brought home to him the true nature of his father's illness. This inevitable conclusion was not only the result of direct observation, but also obtained through the medical knowledge which he gathered in the course of his independent studies. I suspect that before he had even obtained his majority, my friend realized the true nature of his father's affliction and, as a consequence, had developed the deepest horror at the prospect of intimate relations. No one knew him better than I, and I was always conscious of his sensitive nature, which lay beneath a sardonic and impassive veneer. Though he endeavored always to suppress this aspect of his character, the nature and duration of our friendship made this impossible. So on top of everything else that I've told you in this episode, we need to keep in mind that Holmes almost certainly suffered some kind of emotional deprivation during his childhood because of the parents' long illnesses. As I said, they wouldn't have had the emotional or physical energy that he needed growing up. And it sounds like his childhood environment was emotionally barren. I don't know how his younger brother turned out to be more well-rounded and to be a warmer person. It may have been due to his natural makeup, his disposition, just how he was made genetically. But it's also possible that his mother had a little bit of energy and love and that it went all went to him, that he was her favorite. We, we don't know, but it does seem to have been a pretty bleak emotional environment. So the parents die when Holmes is 10 or 11. We know that Mycroft has just started at Oxford, and Sherlock and Orville were taken in by a great uncle on the mother's side, a guy named Joseph Holmes. He was a bachelor, he was a lawyer, and he lived in Yorkshire. And he'd had a relationship with the family and with the boys prior to the parents' death, but he steps in and takes them. And this leads to a really important point, which is when we're talking about why Holmes cannot be traced, why it's been so difficult for people to verify that he was a true historical figure, there's this fortunate circumstance for Holmes, unfortunate for historians, which is that Holmes was not born with the name Sherlock Holmes. Watson thinks his birth name was William Scott. Again, it's hard to tell because I don't have all the records and because Holmes was by nature so secretive. What happens is he's taken in, he and his younger brother are taken in by this great uncle, and eventually, just as Holmes is dropping out of Cambridge around the age of 20, the great uncle pulls the trigger and says to Holmes and his brother, let's make this official. I will leave my property, my home, my financial assets to you and your brother, Orville, if you let me adopt you and you take on the last name Holmes. And it also appears Holmes was perfectly happy to do this because he wanted in some ways to just shed this unhappy past to start over. I don't know if Sherlock had been his middle name originally or whether he adopted it. He just said to his great uncle, can I rename myself? Can I give myself another first name? It isn't clear. But at any rate, that's why we don't have birth records. That's why there are no school records. And in fact, when he was at Cheltenham and at Cambridge, this all happened before he was adopted and changed his name. So we can't tell for certain what his birth name was. I think his older brother in the official records may be referred to as Mycroft Holmes. I'm not even sure they ever actually use his last name. They may always refer to him as Mycroft, but to the extent they refer to him as Holmes... I can't tell you whether that was because he was also adopted as an adult or whether it was just for the sake of consistency and to cover up this past history. 
in the next episode, I think I'll talk a little bit about why it was so important both for Holmes personally and for his career and for the British government who employed him and came to rely on him enormously over the years, why it was important for all of those people and entities and organizations to have him anonymous, to convince the public that he didn't really exist. At any rate, the whole idea of leaving behind an unhappy childhood by changing his name leads me to another point, which is that he seemed to have this desire to remake himself constantly. We hear about what a good actor he was. He was very convincing. He could disguise himself. He could take on different personalities. He could be a drunken groom. He could be a mariner, a sailor. He could be a simple-minded, nonconformist clergyman. He could do all these different parts, and he was so convincing. He was constantly fooling Watson, and Watson was not as dumb as he's made out to be in the official records. Holmes was a very talented mimic and a very talented actor, and he really had potential to be a stage actor and a famous and successful stage actor. And I think one of the reasons he didn't pursue that career was because it would have required him to sit down for interviews and allow his photograph to be taken and to ingratiate himself with the public and to be pleasant to people who approach him on the street. And he had no interest in that. He wanted his privacy. So on the one hand, he wanted to have the freedom to shed his past and not to be Sherlock Holmes for brief stretches where he could just be somebody else, which was a really liberating feeling for him. But on the other hand, he didn't pursue acting for the reasons I've told you. He had this weird dichotomy in his personality where he loved to be successful, he loved to be admired, but he hated to have his privacy invaded. He hated to have people know his most intimate feelings. This is just an interesting part of his personality. He's a complicated guy, obviously. Part of this love of getting out of himself may also not just have been due to insecurity, but it may have been an aspect of his tremendous intellectual curiosity. He had this voracious intellect. He consumed information and processed it and synthesized it. And one of the things that fascinated him was how other people thought. When he was solving crimes, he was always stepping into other people's shoes. He was always saying, what would I do? He would talk about trying to calibrate his intelligence to the level of whoever he was focused on. And then he would say, how would I think? How would I do things? So part of this, I I believe, was even though he didn't like sharing his feelings, even though he didn't want to admit to his insecurities and his fears, These aspects of other people fascinated him. And so one of the ways that he learned about them or thought them through was to put himself in their shoes, sometimes by dressing up and acting like them and sometimes simply by doing it mentally. It's interesting because when he was comfortable, if he was in a situation where he was comfortable, particularly in a work context, somebody comes to him and asks him to solve a problem, and he's clearly the smartest guy in the room, and he's able to spell everything out for everybody, Watson describes him as being masterful. That's the adjective he uses more than any other. He says he had such a strong, persuasive, masterful way about him that it was almost impossible to withstand. He also had a great talent for putting people at their ease. He could be gracious. He could be genial. He could be funny. He was wonderful with women. He didn't want to have any close relations with them, but he knew how to talk to them, how to put them at their ease. So he's a fascinating character. There's so much to talk about here. 
anyway, I'm throwing all sorts of things out there. He certainly was not open to the idea that he had vulnerabilities. Let's put it that way. To the extent that he said, yes, I'm not interested in intimacy, it was all about, I have to focus on my career and keep my mind clear and be a cold machine. It was never, I've got issues and I don't really want to deal with them. Let me talk about his schooling a little bit. I told you that he didn't go away to school until he was a senior, essentially what Americans would call a senior in high school. So he's attending local schools until he's about 10 or 11. His parents die. His great uncle takes him in, takes him and his younger brother in. And for the next six or seven years, they're essentially tutored by people that the great uncle hires. And there's a series of tutors, and they teach him pretty much everything he would have learned if he'd gone away to an expensive boarding school. And on top of that, he has access to his great uncle's library. He has access to other libraries from other well-to-do people in the area, and he is a voracious reader. So he does, through the instruction that he receives from these tutors and through his own intellectual pursuits, he does actually get uh, quite a good education in a haphazard way. He gets to be about 16 or 17, and the tutor at that time says to the great uncle, if you want him to go to university and become an attorney, you got to send him away to school at least for a year because he needs to know how to operate in a classroom. He's going to need to pass some exams to get into Cambridge, not Oxford, probably because he didn't want to be compared to his older brother. And also he needs to be acclimated, get used to being around people his age, a number of men, young men his age, his peers. Up to that point, he and his brother, Orville, were spending an awful lot of time together. Orville was more social than Sherlock was. Sherlock really didn't seek out or enjoy or seem to need the company of his peers. But the tutor said to the uncle, if you want him to be successful in life, he has to understand how it works in our society. And part of that is interacting with people his age and learning to obey rules and go to class and get along with both his fellow students and his teachers. So he goes away to this boarding school, this relatively new boarding school called Cheltenham. By English standards, it was new. I think it might have been founded in, I don't know, the 1840s or 50s. And so he goes for one year. It's not a good time. It's not successful. He doesn't like it. And Orville goes with him. So the two of them go. Orville is the equivalent of a ninth grader, eighth or ninth grade. Holmes is a, essentially a senior. And when Orville's there, actually, he does meet someone named Endicott Peabody, who's an American Peabody's father has come to England to work for an investment bank. He's there for about seven years. Peabody is a teenager. He's there in England. And he comes back to America and founds a boarding school, becomes a minister and founds a boarding school in Massachusetts, originally called the Groton School for Boys. It's now called Groton School. And this figures into future episodes to some degree. So this guy, Endicott Peabody, his wife, Fanny Peabody, and then Orville, they all play some limited role as we move forward. Sherlock talks about his career both at Cheltenham and at Cambridge, and he says, and this is a quote from Watson, Holmes says, I was never one for conventional studies, but was rather inclined from the start to pursue my own peculiar methods and to work things out upon my own lines. That has always been my nature. This quality, my dear Watson, you have been so good as to chronicle in your romantic and, I must say, rather sensational accounts of my trivial successes. My practices at school were not congenial to my instructors, and my resistance to their efforts at persuasion inevitably led to my departure from these esteemed institutions. So that's how he summarizes his academic career. 
In the next episode, we're going to talk a little bit about Watson's childhood, and we're going to begin to discuss Sherlock's career, both as a private investigator, or as he would put it, as the world's only consulting detective on the one hand, and also on the work he did for the British government, both domestically in the form of the Ripper cases and to a lesser extent in terms of foreign affairs. So I hope you join me for the next episode. I look forward to it. And until then, take care. 